please take your Bible this evening and turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. And I'm going to read this evening verses 3 through 15. But the focus of our attention this evening is going to be on verses 12 through 14 of 1 John chapter 2. Starting at verse 3. Now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. Again, A new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write to you, little children, because you have known the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Amen. Well, let's look to God in prayer once again and ask for his help as we come to the ministry of the Word this evening. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your Word, and we thank you that it is a sure Word, and that we can stand upon it, we can rest upon it, we can stake our lives upon it. But we need your help, the help of your Holy Spirit, to understand it, And certainly, if we are going to live by it. So work in our hearts mightily by your Spirit. Help me as I preach. Help us all as we hear your word. May we receive it with meekness, knowing that it is the implanted word that is able to save our souls. And may we be not only hearers of your word, but doers of it. For the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, like Pastor Carlson this morning, I will uh, avoid any kind of real review of what we've seen, other than what I say as we go. But I mentioned already, as we're working our way through the first epistle of John, 
We come now to chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. And as we look at this brief section this evening, I will do it by raising five questions. And the first one is, whom is John addressing here? He writes, beginning at verse 12, to little children. Verse 13, fathers. The middle of verse 13, young men. And then either the end of verse 13 or the beginning of verse 14, depending what version you have. Again, to little children, verse 14, to fathers. And then in the middle of verse 14, to young men. Whom is he addressing? Is he just addressing the little children in the church, the fathers in the church, and the young men in the church, and leaving the mothers, the young women, the older women, the um, not little children, but just normal children? Is he leaving all of them out specifically? I don't think so personally. I believe the best way to understand it is to say that John is addressing in everything he says here in verses 12 to 14 all of his hearers. Some, some commentators do say he's addressing the little children and the fathers and the young men. Some say when he addresses fathers, he means fathers in the faith, faith, mature, older believers, whether men or women, etc. I think it's all his readers. Let me give you my reasons for saying that. He uses two different words for little children in the original language in verse 12 and 13 or the beginning of verse 14, like I said. And I simply would point out that he uses these words in other places in this epistle always to refer to all his readers. Just for the sake of time, I'll mention the text to you, chapter 2 and verse 1, chapter 2, verse 18, chapter 3, verse 7, chapter 3, verse 18, chapter 4, verse 4, chapter 5, verse 21. It's his most frequent way of referring to his readers, little children. So that's one reason I say uh, he's referring to all his readers. Jesus referred to his apostles using the same two words in the original language in John 13, 33 and John 21, 5. They were grown men, but they were little children to him because he was, in a sense, their leader as a Christian man and as especially uh, the Lord himself. And John picked up on that and called his readers that. A second, so therefore, I would say that this passage is not like Titus chapter 2, in which Titus is told by Paul to speak to the older men in the church, to the older women, to the younger women, to the younger men, and then to the slaves. There are different categories of people. You have to give them different categories of instruction. I don't believe Paul is saying things that are really only relevant to specific groups, but as we'll see, they're relevant to all the believers and the church or churches which John is addressing. So John is writing things here, and this is how you and I should look at this. He's saying things, whether he prefaces it by saying little children or fathers or young men, they're things that are all true of all Christians. So that's who I think John is addressing, all his readers in every part of what he says in verses 12 to 14. Second question is this, why does John repeat himself? Why does he say little children, then fathers, then young men, and then again, little children, fathers, and young men? 
He addresses each group twice and even repeats some of the same things. Well, I think it's probably mainly just a literary device or a poetic device. I say poetry, uh, probably many of your Bibles will have this section indented or inset as if it were some kind of poetic verse. And that's a good way to look at it. And I think if we look at it that way, that helps to explain why John is addressing people the way he is, repeating them. Uh, Probably he's doing it for emphasis, like you find in poetry. The uh, the poem, uh, The Charge of the Light Brigade by Tennyson, came to my mind. starts out, half a league, half a league, half a league onward. That gives you an impression of this journey that they were taking to go into battle and face for many of them the end of their lives. And they were pressing on and persevering, though it was a journey. And that's what uh, John is doing. He's not um, telling them they're going to their death here, but he's trying to impress upon them the thing that he writes here. And I think that's why he repeats himself. The third question is this. What is John's purpose in these three verses? Chapter 2, verses 12 to 14. His main purpose is that he wants to assure his readers. I said that assurance is a main topic of John's epistle here. He wants to assure them that they are in the faith. Let's turn to a passage we've looked at before, 1 John 5.13. This is one of the texts, and it comes near the end of the epistle, that makes it very clear that this is one of John's main purposes in writing. John says, as he draws near the end of his epistle, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And then not all of your versions will have this last part, but the King James and New King James do. And that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. But he's writing. He looks back on his whole epistle here, not just what he's written in the previous verse or two, But he looks back on the whole epistle and he says, here is why I have written one of my main goals that you may know that you have eternal life. And we've seen that already in chapter 1, in chapter 2, that he gives these tests to people of whether they're really in the faith. And he wants the real people of God to know that they are really the people of God. Just as he wants the false teachers and their followers to know that they are not the people of God. So he wants to assure them that they are in the faith, and he wants to assure them that he believes that they are true Christians. He wants them to know that that's what he thinks about the majority of his readers, those who are in the church and who are pressing on and holding to the truth about Jesus Christ and to his teaching. He wants them to know that he regards them as true Christians in distinction from the false teachers that he is countering in what he writes and their followers. Let's just look back at Hebrews chapter 6 for a moment. We'll see something similar that the writer to the Hebrews, whether it's Paul or someone else, does there in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 7 to 12. This writer is urging his hearers to press on in the faith, not to go back to Judaism, 
not to turn away from Christ and from the gospel. He's speaking hard words to them. And after he's told them about the danger of falling away and how they cannot come back to repentance if they apostatize, then in verse 7 he says, For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. In other words, it's important that you not fall away from Christ, because that will be your end. Then verse 9, But beloved, and this is what I'm saying, John is saying, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown toward his name and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end that you do not become sluggish but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. If you're familiar with the book of Hebrews, the writer gives many warnings to the hearers. And he speaks some strong words like you have at the beginning part of chapter 6. And he senses perhaps that uh, his hearers, even the true people of God, might be wilting under the pressure of what he writes to them. He doesn't say, well, you know, forget about what I just said. He said, no, I want you to understand, I believe that the root of the matter is in you people. You who are pressing on and persevering. He says that for their encouragement. And similarly... John, in 1 John so far, just in the brief uh, portion of this epistle that we've looked at so far, has spoken strongly about the false teachers and his reproofs of them. He's laid out tests for the people of God. And they're severe tests, we could say. It's hard to hear that sometimes. We hear them and we say, boy, am I a true Christian? And he's going to follow what he says here in chapter 2. Uh, up to verse 14, with some strong words again about not loving the world. The first verse I read there, uh, verse 15 and following, he, he, he says those things. He gives strong warnings about the tempting power of the world. And like Paul, like Paul or whoever wrote Hebrews, he's saying, I want you to know I'm not trying to uh, unchristianize everyone who's hearing my words read in your church. Here's what I think about the majority of you, about the people of God who are pressing on. So that's his purpose, to assure his readers that they are in the faith, if they are, and that he believes that they are true Christians. Question number four, how does he aim to accomplish that? Well, he aims to accomplish that by telling them what he is convinced of about them. As far as we know, John knew these people well. John spent the latter years of his life in Asia. You see how he addresses his letters, in, or Christ addresses his letters through John to the churches of Asia, the seven churches of Asia in the beginning of Revelation. And that's what church tradition tells us about John. And so he would be familiar with these people. He calls them his little children. So he's telling them that he's convinced that they are the real item, genuine Christians. He's telling them what he sees in their lives and what he knows about them. And here are several of the things. I listed four things 
If we group together the things I repeated, we have four things, basically. He tells them, first of all, that their sins are forgiven in verse 12. I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for His name's sake. Bringing to mind what we read in verse 7 of chapter 1, that if we walk in the light as He is in the light, as God is in the light, as Christ is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. He's convinced that their sins have been forgiven. They have trusted in Christ and had all their sins washed away in His blood. And then secondly, He's convinced that they know God. That's what the true religion is all about. Knowing God through Jesus Christ. If we know God through Jesus Christ, that is to have eternal life. John 17, verse 3. Look at verse 13 here of chapter 2. I write to you, fathers, because you have known Him who is from the beginning. God is the eternal God. And you have known Him. The false teachers made a lot, I told you, about knowledge. And John is saying, you know, they may belittle you because you don't have their special secret knowledge as they talk about it. But I believe this, that you people, the people of God, do know God, whom to know is life eternal. And then we have the same thing in the last part of verse 13, or beginning of verse 14. I write to you little children, because you have known the Father. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is your Father. Through faith you know Him. And then the beginning of verse 14, or the next part of verse 14 is there. I have written to you, fathers, because you have known Him who is from the beginning. So it reminds us what we've seen already back in chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. He who says, excuse me, now by this, we know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. He who says, I know Him, and does not keep His commandments as a liar, and the truth is not in Him. And there are always people when a sermon like that is preached, or in the case of these people, a letter from an apostle like that was read, who would be saying, boy, am I really a Christian? They may have walked with God for many years, but they have sensitive consciences, and they say, just this past week, when I think of some of my sins and failures and just outright disobedience of God, I wonder if I'm a Christian. And John is saying, I believe you are. I believe you know God. And then the third thing, they have overcome the devil. Verse 13, the last part, or middle of the verse I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. And then chapter 14, the last part of it. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. The night before Jesus died, he said in John 12, 31, Now is the judgment of this world, now the ruler of this world will be cast out. In other words, he was saying, I'm going to triumph over the devil, your greatest enemy. He was speaking to his apostles and his disciples. I'm going to cast him out. 
And that's what Jesus is saying, was saying then, happened on the cross. And John is saying, if you have trusted in Jesus, there's a sense in which we all need to persevere. Then, as it says in Revelation, we will be overcomers. But what John is saying here is that because of Jesus Christ's death, if you're a Christian, you are an overcomer. You have overcome the devil. Christ disarmed principalities and powers as far as you are concerned. They not, cannot touch you in terms of taking your soul down to hell with them if you are a true child of God. He made a public spectacle of them, Colossians 2 says, triumphing over them in the cross. And John speaks words like this later on um, in chapter 4, verse 4, and chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. We'll just say, we'll look at verse 4 of chapter 4. He says to them, You are of God, little children, and over, have overcome them, the Antichrists, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world, the wicked one. We have triumphed over the devil. And then fourth and finally, he says they are strong. Verse 14, once again, the last part of the verse. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. You are strong, and the word of God abides in you. In other words, because you have the word of God abiding in you, you are strong. We heard that language um, uh, in chapter 3 of Colossians, didn't we, recently? Colossians 3.16, that we are to let the word of God dwell in us richly. We're to read it, we're to memorize it, we're to meditate on it, we're to focus our attention upon it, and if we do, we will be strong. And that's the same truth John is bringing out here. So that's how he aims to accomplish his purpose of encouraging the Christians. He uh, wants them to know they're Christians, and he tells them these truths about themselves, that these are true about them if they're God's people. Fifthly and finally, how should we apply this to our lives? Well, basically, uh, we are to apply it to our lives if we are not hypocrites, in other words, we not only say that we know him, but we truly know him. Uh, if you're not in a church, for instance, that makes no effort to discern who is a real believer and who is not a real believer, you take the word of God seriously, you take these tests of John seriously, you don't read one of those tests that uh, if you keep his commandments then you're in the light and just say, well, we're all, it's all of grace and so we don't have to worry about these kinds of tests as you might call them. No, if you're not a hypocrite, you're a real Christian. Here's how you should apply this to your own life. First of all, you should take heart and you should receive the encouragements of the Word of God and the encouragements of your fellow Christian brethren and the encouragements of your pastors. It's not a very common thing that people are saying to me, Pastor, I don't think I'm a Christian, but it's common enough. I've been a pastor for 30 years. It hasn't stopped yet. There are always some people 
And not everybody who thinks that way probably comes to one of the pastors and says that. But if you're a, a child of God and you're with people of God who know the Bible and who know you, and when you have those down days and those bad incidents and you say, I don't think I'm a Christian, and your pastor talks to you and says, well, look, here's how I see it. Here's how I would pl- apply the Word of God to your situation. You sin, you're grieved about it. You sin, you confess it. You sin, you ask God's forgiveness. You're a Christian. You've had your sins forgiven, as John says. Take heart from that, brethren. Secondly, John writes, I write to you because you have known him who is from the beginning. You know God. All right, here's the application. Boast in that. I didn't say boast in yourself. Boast that you're better than other people, that you're better than non-Christians. No, if you know God, it's all by the grace of God. But God did say this through the prophet Jeremiah, didn't he? Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me. You can glory as a Christian. You can boast as a Christian, just another synonym to translate that same word as some English versions do. And you should boast in it, and you should make your boast in God all the day long. And you should, as the Apostle Paul, refuse to boast in anything except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. But that's boasting that you know God if you're a Christian. And you should do like the Apostle Paul. Boast that you know God. Third, rejoice in the forgiveness of your sins. Like we sing in one of our hymns. My sin, and then the hymn writer has to stop and just have a little bit of, well, Pastor Martin used to call it a glory fit, but just a mini one because he has to finish the stanza. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. I hope you will never tire of glorying in and rejoicing in the fact that your sins have been forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ. If you knew nothing else about the Bible or the Christian faith, and that were true of you, that should be enough to get you through this life and all the trials and the hardships of it. Because no matter what people may do to you, no one can take away this fact that your sins will not stand against you in the day of judgment. Maybe your father said terrible things to you when you were growing up. Or maybe your mother had a very sharp and cutting tongue. Maybe you have done things in your life even since your conversion to Christ, that have made you think you will always be a second-rate Christian at best, if a true Christian at all. But if you are a Christian, your sins have been forgiven, and you should rejoice in it. And you should rejoice with the best of Christians, with the Apostle John, with the Apostle Paul, with all the saints around the throne. Fourth, rejoice that you have overcome the devil 
and that he will shortly be crushed under your feet. Jesus has dealt him the killing blow already on the cross, and that will never be undone, ever. And Paul writes in Romans 16, 20, that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. You should rejoice in that. We're in a spiritual battle, and the devil is always after us with his minions, but he will soon be completely destroyed. And then fifthly, you should believe that you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. You can do it through the Word of God dwelling in you richly. And so Paul, as John says at the end of verse 14, I've written to you, young men, because you are strong and the Word of God abides in you. If you're a Christian, this is why I said it applies to everyone, not just certain ones in the church. Not just certain ones in the church. All of God's people, you are strong. Maybe you have fought in your life so long and hard against certain sins, and you're still doing it, though you've been a Christian for a long time. That's true of me, and it grieves me. But I'm staying in the fight, because I believe this. I believe I will triumph in the end, because God, not myself, God has made me strong. And He's made me strong, not by any innate strength I have, but by His Holy Spirit. And you may believe that you'll never overcome certain sins. Don't think that way. You'll say, I can't. John doesn't think so. He writes to all the Christians, you are strong. And if God's Spirit is in them, by definition they are strong. And you are strong, people of God. You shouldn't think any other way. Do you have bad days? Yes, we all do. Are you weak in yourself? Yes. Why are you weak? So God can manifest His strength in you. The Word of God says, believe it, believe it, believe it. Believe that Jesus, who died and took away the sin of the world, can can enable you to be strong and to overcome the wicked one. If you're not a believer, all of this that I've said could be true of you. But there's only one path to that, and that is the path of repentance of your sins and faith in Jesus Christ. And I urge you to repent of your sins this day, if you have not, and to believe in God's Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and ask that you would write your word upon our hearts this night, that we would believe what Scripture says as it applies to ourselves and give us light to better understand ourselves and the state of our souls and then to walk as those who know you, who have had our sins forgiven and because of your grace and your spirit are strong and have overcome because of Christ the wicked one. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.